My name is Edward Champion, and this is the Bat Segundo Show. On April 30th, 2014, Juno Diaz published an essay on the New Yorker's blog, Page Turner. He recalled the discomfort he felt not long after enrolling in the Cornell MFA program. The curriculum, he wrote, was too white. Because of this, one promising MFA student named Athena, a writer of color, couldn't take it anymore and decided to drop out. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that's a goddamn travesty. When I think about what draws me to literature, it's not the authors who confirm my own biases or perspectives or viewpoints. It's about people who live in other places, the souls I may not be lucky enough to meet, the voices that dare to tell the truth, reminding me how little I know about the universe. I suppose these are some of the reasons why poor Chista Cockpour's second novel, The Last Illusion, spoke to me on a number of levels. I mean, here is a book that is fearless in amalgamating the romantic with the grotesque, a novel munificent in its spot-on insinuation that interesting people can be found nearly everywhere. But do you have what it takes to listen to them? To relate to them? To know that they hold the strings over areas of life that you take for granted? Can novels correct this imbalance? And what can a novelist like poor Chista Cockpour do that others can't? Well, quite a good deal, as it turns out. Okay, so I am here with poor Chista Cockpour, who is most recently the author of The Last Illusion. Poor Chista, how are you doing? I'm okay, thank you. You're okay, okay. Well, how can we make you uh, more than okay? Well, I'm... I've been, I, don't, I shouldn't be laughing about this, but I've been suffering. Well, gallows humor. <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of, I've got gallows humor for miles, but I've been having so many difficulties because of a recent relapse of Lyme disease. Yeah. So I'm finding uh, all the, uh, I'm finding everything a little extra challenging, but maybe also a little bit thrilling because who knows what will come out. What's for, the, what's the thrill of, uh, of this predicament? The, the thrill is that I actually don't entirely know myself sometimes. So I've been, You've, you know, you I found out more things about yourself. <laughs> well, <laughs> sort of, yeah. I mean, I've been teaching and lecturing and sometimes I, I feel like there's, you know, this disease attra- attacks your soft tissues everywhere. Um, your brain and your organs and everything at certain times. I thought your, the brain was a harder tissue, you know, all that work, especially your brain. In my case, <laughs> no, it's I, pretty damn oh, brittle. Oh, I don't know about um, that. But, but, um, it's weird. I, can't, I, I remember certain things that I never thought I, I had, I thought I had just done away with, and then certain things I will completely forget. That, you know, I have that, that sort of senile dementia. But see, I'm like mess- that without Lyme disease. So <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think I think actually, if, if that's the case, you're the most formidable intellect who's ever appeared on this show. Oh, thank you. No, I feel it, it's amazing. I, I looked up this thing called messy house syndrome. Messy house And I thought syndrome. it literally just meant... Like your house is messy, or your but house I think is not it, in order yeah. in some sort of family dynasty kind <laughs> yeah, of sense. <laughs> but I think it's this thing called like I don't know how to, exactly to pronounce it. Um, I forget, but there's various names that involve uh, forms of senile dementia that are related to it, and uh, it it is sort of a sort of an interesting umbrella term for various forms of cognitive dysfunction that I very much relate to. But since it's, I don't think it's permanent, I hope it's not permanent. I'm enjoying it a little bit. Yeah. You know, I, my emotional range is quite stunted. It, so It's kind of a temporary vacation from constantly little, thinking all the time. Well, I'm short-circuited yeah. a lot with thinking. Well, you're associated, and, um, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. You know, so, which some people call short-circuit, <laughs> but actually is really kind of liberating. So you have this yeah. this, this little caesura in the usual kind of great Portuguese universe. 
It's 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 interesting, you know. It's inter- I used to be so obsessed with altered states, and I would do drugs to achieve them and all that. And now I now just you've got get the ultimate to, altered, yeah, the, the ultimate natural high. Exactly, and so in some ways, it's it's kind of amazing. But it would be nice if I knew it would end soon. I think it will. But. And yet, and yet, you have been nothing less than perspicacious so far. So, okay, thank uh, so you. Anyway, you. Okay, let, let, let's get into the book. Okay, <laughs> okay, so so Marco Polo he popularized the legend of the rock. The Greeks. They have the phoenix. Slavic folklore has the firebird. Uh, in short, I don't think there's a single culture in the world that does not have some form of a mythological bird. America has the bald ego. E- the bald eagle. <laughs> the bald ego as well. We have the bald ego and the bald eagle. And it's not and not far from the years of your novel, you know, in 1999 to 2001, which is when yours is set. Um, the bald eagle was actually placed from an endangered species to a threatened species, and now is actually off that list altogether because the bald eagle made a comeback. So you know, beyond your inspiration from the Shanama. I'm curious what drew you to the bird as this malleable mythological symbol. To what extent were you interested in not only transcending culture across nations, but even subcultures, perhaps bird-related, within this nation? Oh, that's so interesting. I love that question. Um, yeah, I, there's a lot of avian themes in everything I write, yeah. and it's strange. It was in my first novel as well, and then I, I just naturally gravitated toward it here. I think, you know, I, I was at a residency when where everybody was working very hard. And it was one of my first residencies. And I had no interest in being there almost. I was just tired from the first book. And I just decided I was going to read during my residency time. And I brought a copy of the Persian Book of Kings, the Shahnameh, the Dick Davis translation that came out a few years ago. And I was flipping through it and remembering my father reading it to me in the, you know, in, in Farsi. And... There was always just this one story that I always would make him reread, and it was the story of Zal and, and his his friendship with this giant mythological bird, the Seymour. It's strange to even say friendship. I mean, the Seymour was his guardian. Yeah. And so essentially raised him. And so anyways, that was in the back of my mind while I was flipping through it at night at this residency, and then I would go on smoking breaks. And there was this one other uh, lovely artist there who would, was the only other smoker, and she was also kind of pretending to do work. And she, we would just talk about our lives during the smoking breaks. And one time she said to me, she would just go on these rants, and she said, whatever you do, never Google feral children. And I said, wait, why did you say that? What? And she said, oh, no, I've just been bored. I've been Googling things late at night. And As I thought, one does. Yeah. And then, so I thought, okay, um, let me look. I, I went there, obviously. It was like late at night there one night. And I, whoa, it was very horrific. And I'd always been interested sort of in both the, you know, quote, reality, but also the hoaxes, as, as, you know, that have been attributed to feral children. So then I found this case of this, this Russian case of a bird boy who'd been essentially partially raised it seemed in a cage and could only chirp it maybe was a hoax maybe not and immediately I combined that with Zal in my brain and the two just kind of mashed up seamlessly the next day at our smoking break I told her I said I think you just helped me come up with my second novel I'd had the other thread to the second novel which which really um involved this the magician and and that the last illusion but he was only I could always tell that he was 50% at most of the story, and there was a whole other thread. So, um, I don't know, then I came to that. 
And it, it actually, it was interesting. After I wrote the first draft, I realized, boy, you're obsessed with birds and flight and all that. What is that about? And I, you know, there's, there's a sort of made-up myth in the first novel that involves burning doves, actually. Yeah. Uh, that's sort of the myth beyond the narr- behind the narrative of the first novel. This is and what it sounds like when the doves fry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I've had so many people Sorry. scold me about that scene. It's funny. People come to the readings, and I, I only started reading from it late in the game, and I would have these, these uh, oftentimes older women who would come to me and older say that, women? yes, who'd say, why, are you, why would you have such uh, scenes of animal abuse? And they would accuse me of, like, having harmed animals myself, and I was just so horrified. I was, no, this is fiction. And this didn't, People get very sensitive yeah, I, to animals being harmed in fiction, I find out. Totally. I mean, they're, they're more willing to impute an author for a fictional animal abuse more so than any real animal I know, abuse. It's really odd. Yeah. I know, and people were, were very disturbed by that. But anyways, you brought up so many good points about the, the cultures in the U.S. too. I think, I mean, there's a general awe that comes... When when you think about flight, right? Yeah. There's that that's that the one thing we definitely can't do. We can do it in these kind of wonky, adorable human ways, you know, hang glider, um, skydiving, um, you know, base fly- jumping. Yeah, base jumping, right? That that are- amazing video from the Freedom Tower. Oh, I, know. I, I watched that. I, I'm not even going to tell you how many times I watched. Same that. here. It just, it just was- gave me such a cathartic thrill. Oh yeah. yeah, I started collecting a lot of those ideas when I was or collecting a lot of those instances and looking at their videos and all that when I was writing this. And, you know, that figures, even the idea of stunts that involve flight or falling are big in this book. So... How many times did your dad read you The Legend of Zal? I'm curious, because it seems to me like that was, it was deeply imprinted upon you as a child. And we always go back to the tales we're told as children to sort of find meaning and inspiration as adults. Over and over, I would ask him to read this. He would keep going. There's many amazing stories in the Shahnameh. There's so many beautiful and incredible... You know, it has that feeling of, like, the Canterbury Tales and the Old Testament where you can go to it for unlimited inspiration. But I was frozen on Zal. I related to him so much because there was also... You know, in my first novel, there's a whole thing with... I dream of genie, this blonde genie, yes. right? And the, the the weirdness of that to me. And as here you a, are blonde as well. <laughs> yes, for an article it's, and kind of for the third the novel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now I am the one of the fakest blondes ever. Um, and um, so that was a fascination. I had. The other thing that was interesting in the story of Zal was that he was born essentially something like an albino. It's unclear yeah. from the text exactly what they meant, but he had a certain whiteness of skin and a lightness of hair, sort of like he basically had white hair. And that was why he was cast out. And I think for an Iranian immigrant, you know, new to the U.S., at that point we'd only been a few years to the U.S., I was so fascinated by issues that surrounded um, race and ethnicity in the U.S. versus Iran and and what that all meant. So that, that some, this out, so this all to me was just... I didn't know what to make out of his story. He he was somehow this what Americans might consider the ideal of beauty, uh, maybe even some other cultures, of course. And yet he was cast, he was cast aside, basically left in the wilderness to be raised by a bird. Um, there were a lot of uncleared mysteries in the original tale. Yeah. And maybe this is perhaps what captured your imagination and led you to sort of flesh it out and exactly. transplant him here in New York. Yeah, ex- exactly. And I had been so anxious about fitting into 
America at that point, and I knew I couldn't even really relate to my own p- parents. I mean, they were of a different socioeconomic class than my brother and I. So here were two upper class Iranians in their 20s who were fairly gutted about, like, you know, not being able to, to do fancy things. You know, my father would, my mother would be upset that we couldn't have a childhood where we went shopping in Europe. And my father was, meanwhile, making us Wonder Bread sandwiches with butter and caviar on it to send butter us to school. Butter and caviar. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we would just That, like, that would make the lunch sharing a little bit more convoluted. <laughs> we would just I'll give you like, the caviar for the apples. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's very confused issues surrounding, you know, nationality and ethnicity and all that. So And class. And class, definitely. Um, so I was constantly thinking about those things and when it would hit time at these late late at night when he would read me these stories I had horrible insomnia I would sit with him and he'd pick up where he left off I would just ask could you read the story one more time he seemed to give me both a combination of hope for the for the outsider because the end of the Zal story is that he's a great warrior and he he's a great hero of the Persian Empire and you know even his whiteness starts to be discovered uh, discussed as silver yes he's, it's very striking he suddenly becomes the embodiment of strength but um, and power but there's a lot of conflict in his story too and there was a lot of darkness in that story too and that really got my wheels turning at a young age and I feel like I've always waited to have an opportunity to do something with that story and it sort of got me when I didn't even know I was looking for it. I, I want to get into this more specifically later but I do want to ask you if Zal's Mysteries, this struggle of being a white demon in a dark world so to speak, uh, if, did this lead you to be more willing to examine the grotesque this time around? I'm wondering how that played into thinking about Zal's life. Yeah, um, I think that's... There's some other influences in this book, too. You know that whole Toni Morrison, like, uh, quote of, you know, write the book that you want to read to paraphrase paraphrase it disastrously. Um, I I think I'll paraphrase it worse than you. (laughs) I I never remember how write that kind of, like, book thing that you (laughs) kind of read and you want to... (laughs) Exactly. Well, well, I wanted to do that here, and I was always very um, obsessed with... Uh, Latin American magical realists, European surrealists, American experimental writers. And a lot of that stuff that I was finally getting a chance to teach was kind of sinking in uh, with this book. So so you wanted to write the book that you wanted to write. Oh, yeah. So all those influences were finally really sinking in as I was teaching them a lot. So the idea of the grotesque figured in, in that way. I didn't want the characters to just be weird for weird's sake. I was not interested in that, that um, experiment. I'd been there before at grad school. You know, I was, I was a student that terrorized everybody with stories that were, you know, incomprehensibly strange. And I would be adversarial when people would ask me about their meaning or, you uh, Portista, yeah, you couldn't that. hurt a single fly. <laughs> Uh, well, I was, uh, yeah, I've come a little bit of a ways, but... I think so, I think so. <laughs> but, but the, so anyways, I got here and I was thinking about the grotesque and why these sort of identities interested me in the first place, why they dazzled me in, in, in say, those books that I adored. Um, and I realized that, that that's how I self-identified in some way, and that so every character in this book for me feels like a version of myself um, to some degree. And some, a friend of mine joked, 
a friend who knows me very well said, this is like your memoir. I know authors, you know, fiction writers especially always hate to say that. But I found myself actually being open about, even with the first novel, and, and again here, that this is um, obviously, obviously a work of the imagination, but also very, very close to me. This book is, this book felt like it was killing me the whole time I was writing it because it felt more me than me. I mean, yeah. I never felt like I had put myself out there more, and this came at a time where I was writing essays constantly and doing so much work in nonfiction, but this is my truth more than anything, actually. Yeah. I, I wanted to go back to what you were saying about the South Americans oh, yeah. uh, and this notion that our response to the real is often more surreal than real. I mean, David Foster Wallace, yeah, when, when he was talking about what went into Infinite Jest, you know, the notions of subsidized time or wheelchaired Quebec revolutionaries... This was, in his mind, an absolute realist response. But in looking upon it, how it manifests itself into an, a book, it just becomes utterly batshit and surreal. So, you know, do you feel that when you are responding to reality, you can't help but, I mean, your mind is just naturally filtered that way? Yeah. That it's just going to come out that way? I mean, have you have you striven for, um, especially in our time of Kanaskar, I mean, I mean, are you driven in any way to, to be a hard realist? Or do you think this is just not something that... Um, you can be at this point. I'm, I'm really interested in these issues, um, probably even outside of being a writer as both, you know, a critic or a professor. I think about these things a lot. But it's it's interesting. I mean, I, I often talk think about, like, hyper-real, you know, sure. and what that means. And so Stephen Dixon, who was one of my professors at Johns Hopkins, and really the main reason I went there is because he was one of my favorite writers of all time, you know, I think about his his realism, and so often people don't want to even talk about him I know. as a realist author. But to me, he's the most realist author. When he captures that voice in all of our heads, this sort of private, you know, consciousness, so brilliantly, so accurately, um, people sometimes don't have patience for it and want to read this type of realism that I find really problematic. Where it's so polished, so pruned, so manicured that I don't think it resembles anyone's interior state and it doesn't resemble this world at all. This are we is talking my... about the sort of ornate, dirty realism here? Are we talking about something where someone is writing in this kind of dry, literary mode of I have lived and I'm going to describe it in sentences that will bore you to tears? Yeah, well, yeah, definitely the latter. I mean, that sort of you know, remember back in the day, write what you know was such yeah. good advice at these MFAs and, and even undergraduate um, programs. And there was this sort of American domestic realism, not yeah. even so much the dirty or Kmart realists, because I like them stylistically yeah, yeah, sometimes, yeah. and I think they do really interesting things. But there was this idea that the honest truth was the simplest story, the most unadorned. And then. The one that's confined inside an upper middle class household. Often in New England. Exactly. And, and, and unfortunately, and it, and it gives a, rap to, a bad rap to like people who are brilliant at this, like exactly. Carol Shields. Yeah. Right. Oh, exactly. I mean, so often I was put on a diet of stories that were about older white women gardening or <laughs> creating these pristine, beautiful dishes or, you know, sort of... Or a long six-page section <laughs> on how the actual party was set up for only two other people <laughs> who really don't converse much except to yes. remark upon birds or something. Yeah. <laughs> yes. 
to bring us back to birds. Yes, exactly. So you, well, the, you're the, the revolutionary bird. Exactly. The, rev, the, the revolutionary strange bird. Um, I loved, you know, I do love James Salter. I yeah. loved Richard Yates. I love all those writers. I love them stylistically. I love Cheever also stylistically. Oh, yeah. Um, Who's but, also a surrealist at times. Yes. I, I love those moments in Cheever especially. But I think there was this other idea, this almost misinterpretation that some of, some writers and some academics were pushing forward of this sort of authentic realism that honestly I think very few people honestly relate to. It's yeah. a very small segment of the population. So I would find students kind of aspiring to write these things and we would all be confused when we discussed them in a workshop. Nobody relates to this stuff. So at the end of the day I thought, you know, be yourself. And for me be yourself has always meant um, freaks and outsiders in yeah. some ways. And um, you know... Or I, dare to find the human in the idiosyncratic. Exactly. M- beautifully put, Ed. Yeah, exactly. Um, I. This person may be a monster, but if you stick with this person long enough, you will find that their human impulses, their cravings, their emotions are just as viable and just as complicated as anybody else. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've always been interested in Brady Snellis' work for that reason. And, and I'm not just talking about American Psycho. I'm talking about... Glamorama, I, yeah. I feel, is a really neglected book. I mean, sure. I, well, he kind of got off the rails in recent times, unfortunately. I know, I know. But, you know, but... But he really was trying to also work that territory as well. Yeah. Beyond the brand names, totally. beyond all that other stuff. Yeah. Less than zero, all, oh, all yeah. of it. it I, I think it's, it's, it's easy to dismiss him as a writer. Or, or It's easy to dismiss some of, a lot of these writers who take risks as something, you know, gimmicky. But the risk, the, the willingness to be original, to push something forward, that in itself, I think, is actually a big deal. Like, I, I, yeah. I just had this... Experience when um, you know that I, I was reviewing Helen Oyemi's Boy Snow Bird, and it was, you know, I was very honored that, but I completely understood why the New York Times put that on the cover of the book review. And I was talking to a friend about it recently, and he was telling me, Well, you know, it really wasn't a perfect book. And I said, Well, that's also a little bit in my review, but it's, it's, it's to me what I consider pretty much a perfect book (laughs) because the risk is, first of all, what is that? Right. And then secondly, it's, it, it's risks. It's, it's originality. It's urgency. It's willing to confront things that we know have been around us, but in a, in a very bold way that then becomes unique because so few have dared to do it that way. Um, that's a lot for me. That that counts for a lot. And so I would agree with you. Helen Oyeyemi is absolutely free with her voice in yeah. a way that you just don't see with writers. And and maybe we should just I mean, I would love to talk about this with yeah. you. What the hell has happened in the last 20 years? The way I, I the way I look at it is this. And and maybe you can you can jump off of this. We had the war against postmodernism. Suddenly, there came a time where you couldn't be cartoonish, you couldn't be self-referential, you couldn't actually be satirical or ironical. Suddenly, you have the rise of McSweeney's and the end of Snark. Coincidentally, with the end of irony, thanks to September 11th. (laughs) Then you have this really weird thing happen where that eventually goes out of style. People recognize it for its twee and cutesy nonsense. And then you have this kind of really sort of stark... Gordon Lish style of writing that is supposed to be experimental, but then ends up reinforcing much of the same stuff. And now we're at a point, which I'm actually kind of a little afraid of, where um, you know we're all about having likable, fun books and the ability to challenge, the ability to confront, the ability to deal with very dangerous and dark emotions. I feel right now is is 
not so cool. And also deep political questions, like you know, to name two books that I thought were incredible: Dina Mengistu's oh, All yeah. Our Names, and um, and I'm blanking on the other one that was just um, oh, it was. Um, and I talk with her, too. Um, so I'm blanking out. But anyway, the point I'm trying to make here is, is that there has been like this... Sl- all, any book that is political... Oh, Ian Lee's wonderful book, Kind oh, of in yeah, Solitude. Yeah, yeah. I um, can't wait to read yeah, that. Yeah, it's incredible. But it deals with very sophisticated political questions, both of these books. And they're not being read by a certain type of kind of young enthusiast. Because, like, you know, when you and I, I know, were, were young, we were reading, like, fiction, nonfiction. We wanted to read everything. But exactly. there's this... I mean, what do you think accounts for this... This development right now is it, is it fear? Is it anxiety? Is it uh, you know, why are we in this kind of weird conservative literary movement? Well, I, I think part of it has to do with you know now we're older, right? I'm 36 now, and there's this new young generation, right? The millennials, you know, we're of, I I love being a Gen Xer, but you know I've really tried recently to understand millennials. I teach them all the time, and I really want to understand them on their terms, and they're so you know. They are so fearful and they are so much more conservative than we were. And then I really tried to think about this. Well, they've lived in a world where economic crisis has been the only rule of the game. I mean, we at least remember this period where maybe not us, but people around us were making a lot of money in or Silicon Valley. They, and they can't get a job. And we, we always have our those early jobs with which to kind of exactly. bounce around it and realize, exactly. oh, I don't want to do this and I do want to do this. And then they had the trauma of 9-11. You know, I, I was 23 when that happened, so I was at least an adult. Uh, it was still the, the major trauma of my life, but I... Um, it affected me different. I, I always wondered what, how that would have played out for a child, and now I see. So they're incredibly um, anxious. They're incredibly depressed, but they're also incredibly obsessed with being ethical, ex- obsessed with being good. And I've really tried to get them to rein that into useful things, you know, maybe like social activism or, 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 or different things like that. The other day, I, I started my class at Wesleyan because I was so frustrated, and I said, I had said to a few students that they were doing really well, and they looked at me really blankly, and I didn't understand why, and I had to really sit and think about that, and I thought, oh my God, it's because of their culture of favoriting and liking that to even pay these millennials a compliment. Is greeted with some kind of suspicion. Yeah, exactly, and I said, I can't even give you guys, I can't tell tell you guys anything good. Unless there's like some sort of like visual overlay that (laughs) registers how much, what's the exact metric for how how well they're doing as a good job. Well, and now the funny thing is you've got the older millennials versus the younger millennials. The very young millennials don't like Facebook, they don't like Twitter, they don't like social media. And they're very pro Snapchat and all that. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So it's fascinating to watch. So I think, okay, their presence has done some game-changing things. Well, it's one of the good things it's done is is kind of made hierarchies look stupid. And some of the old, you know, I had a Gen X, you know, editor only a few years older than me when I was first sending out my query letters advised me to to um, address them. Dear sirs, please pardon the intrusion. And then I'd get into my, you know, spiel. I can't imagine... Millennials are almost too casual. Yeah. Hey there, what's up or something, right? Yo, read my yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but in a weird way, <laughs> yeah. we're kind of on their team with that. Like they're kind of really pragmatic. They're really trying to just get things done in kind of a basic way. But of course, the problem is all the anxiety and um, the speed is a big problem. And their speed has 
kind of screwed up our speed. I think so many of us, we were always thinkers. We liked, you know, think about all the Gen X movies. Everyone had a paperback in their back pocket. We knew how to sit with books, sit with us. We almost sat with things too much, right, with the slacker stuff. Yeah. Um, But... Well, when your phone is constantly buzzing of some sort of new alert or notification... I mean, even I mean, even someone I'm fairly I'm a fairly disciplined reader, but even I will check like after about like you know an hour or two if it, if I hear a buzz, ooh, ooh yeah, it's, yeah, it's like exactly. I get my little candy. You oh, know? I know. I it's, wake it's, up in the morning. The first thing now I do, I used to make fun of people. Yeah, I've only had an iPhone for a year and a half, but I now. Well, wake yeah, me up. too. I've only yeah. had it about like you know a little under two years. Yeah, and I, I finally succumbed, and <laughs> and we became just like the other pop I people. I know, yeah. except we don't have. We weren't born with these weird millennial brains that were wired to be overstimulated at all times. So for us, there's this, both this advantage in that we can remember a time and tell these people it doesn't have to be like this, but the other but thing we, is... But we can't be nostalgic about it. We exactly. actually have to be living yes. the present day. What do we... I mean, you know, okay, we're identifying some things, but why do you think that there's this, there's this kind of suspicion or even this horror over anything that actually dares to confront, literature-wise? Yeah, I think... It's a great question. I mean, I think... There's so much anxiety that has to do with money in the market, right? If I'm myself, and if that thing is different or unpopular, what will that mean? And how do I, you know, be myself in this world? I think a lot of these students, I, I do many exercises with them, pinpoint what your interest, who are you as a person, what's your worldview? And these are questions that I've really asked myself, you know, um, for so long. Because you can argue that the the you know, the immigrant, especially if you're not part of a big immigrant, identifiable immigrant group in this country, and especially if you pass, is in a certain sort of um, strange state that resembles the millennials in a way, I think. <laughs> I've always had to, when someone would ask me a question, I'd have to, um, in my head, answer it from about four different angles. Yeah. And then I would have to reconcile what felt the, the truest, and then I would answer it. So everything was a composite all the time. So, anyways, I, I, one thing I, I t- try to tell people and I try to think myself is you, you, you really be true to yourself and really have faith in your work and then the right people will follow. Um, I remember at one point I was so frustrated with um, one of the agents I had saying, you know, this, what you're doing isn't popular. What you're doing isn't going to have an audience. Why don't you look at what's out there and my thought was like especially as a journalist I could say this because I, I do f- follow certain areas in the arts but that was yesterday what about the next thing what and do we then, build off yeah. of yeah how do we evolve how do we grow right how do we create a narrative path exactly yeah. and so and to me the only way to do that is to truly be yourself especially if you're of some underrepresented group because the overrepresented ones are yesterday's news. They've already been there. So when I set out to write this book, I thought the whole time I was writing it, I said, this is going to be the book that nobody will ever read. This is the book that no one will, you know. I even remember my, my editor, who was so lovely to acquire it after a long period that you know, it was going from publishing house to publishing house. Um, she said, you know, well, and I think that, you know, this could become a cult hit, if nothing else. And I thought, yeah, okay, that's true, you know. And that was my greatest hope, is that and we could reach, like, some, some weird kid somewhere, or somebody else who has no identifiable, or not, no single identifiable culture. And um, it's been interesting to me 
how many people have identified with it. And Vogue really ate it up, which I found quite incredible. I was just shocked. And, and, and yeah. also indicative in some sense of a desire among just a regular reading audience, not someone who's online, not someone who's trying to position themselves into some kind of hierarchy. They are looking for something that's different. Yes, and, and and the sooner we actually understand that, and it's and it's and sometimes it's hard for people who are based in New York to understand. Yep, there are people all over the country, all yes. over the world, <laughs> who are starving for this kind of thing. Yeah, I mean that's that's what's interesting. That whole you know, it was in the issue of Vogue that had um, Kanye West and Kim Kardashian on the cover that so many people were so indignant about, and I didn't understand why. You know, that seems to me very appropriate. For Vogue, it's actually very, it's quite daring for Vogue, too. But, you know, because one associates Vogue, I think, sometimes with being, um, you know, upper middle class, upper class, and more conservative, possibly. But but also, you know, tuned into pop culture. So I thought, okay, that that's, that's if you've been listening to Kanye and Kim, it seems like the, the right move. And then, but it... Look, they're t- the, the, the risks, the, 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 the world is asking us to take some risks, I think. Yeah. And they're listening, and I'm so impressed. I underestimated some of these women's magazines. They've embraced this book incredibly. And I, 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 I was surprised because I never really um, felt connected to women's magazines, um, other than just sort of the images and, and aspects of it. But I, but I always feared the advice that was in them, you know, and... and what that meant for some women. So I've been I've been astounded. But um, that we live in strange times, truly. And and but hasn't it always been the case that the universe is essentially indifferent? And the only logical reaction is to do something very daring because one, you only live once, and two, the universe is indifferent and is not going to care mm. at all about your efforts. Yeah, I, I, I think that's the real truth. But the funny thing is the truth sometimes gets so muffled when you're in industries, right? Or when you're working with corporations or when you're working, you know. And, or when uh, there are these, these blind ideological labels like cancel Colbert over something right. that is drastically misinterpreted in which there's all sorts of context saddled down. And, I mean, honestly, really, over, over a misunderstanding, we're going to condemn someone. You know, the whole notion, as Chad Post recently put it, that Twitter never forgets. <laughs> you know, it's like, I mean, you don't have to forget, but why can't we have greater understanding? It's just, yeah. I, I guess it's me getting on my horse yet again. Be- because I think sometimes we don't believe people's yeah. sincere, we don't believe people when they're being sincere anymore. We yeah. think they're doing it, the Twitter apology or the Twitter... The uh, apology after the apology. Yeah, the, exactly. The, the, the apology cycle. Yeah, so we don't know who people <laughs> are. And, you know, I, I, whenever people talk about media training or things like that, I'm just so horrified. But I do remember there was a time where that was... Um, something that was really pushed. And luckily I was at these, you know, the stalwart indie publishers like Grove and Bloomsbury that don't put you through that enough. There was no for this, yeah, by the way. Yeah, exactly. We just started talking. <laughs> yeah. And I, I never do well in those. Luckily I've just had the personality, I think, to be sort of rebellious. And I've always had a hard time with authority and I've always had trouble with mainstream or dominant cultures. But that I was forced into that. So yeah. I say luckily, I mean... That's a choice at some point you make, and then you run with it. And so, sure, in my brain, I can now figure out what 
the sort of bestseller to write would be that could make me rich. Or I could think of 10 million ways to make money. Some are illegal that I'm not above at all, actually. (laughs) Well, this is true confessions. (laughs) Um, Suddenly, Porachista's involvement with the Mexican drug cartel will finally be accompanied by a Bastogne smoking gun story with all sorts of documents that we have dived into and all sorts of corroborative statements. Yeah, exactly. Wow, who knew this would go this way? Hey, you know, I think so many people would be up for legal things if they were presented with the opportunity. Um, but, but the point is, if we all just wanted to make money, we're smart enough to understand the way, or many of us are smart enough at least, to figure out how to do that. You know? And you have to ask yourself what, what, sort, of value, uh, what sort of values you have. You know? um, is it important for you to go to very fancy restaurants? Is it important for you to go on fabulous ski trips? Is, is, is living in a certain type of apartment or house important to you? I ask, I ask my students this sometimes when they talk about wanting to be a writer. And sometimes I've actually said to them, you don't, we don't all have to be writers, you know? We don't. There's other options. And, well, you know. the, the, the mistaken assumption that one can have the middle-class lifestyle and the writing lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, this has increasingly become this ideal I, I, I see promulgated. And, you know, like, guess what? Uh, if you're a writer and you're collecting checks and you're barely able to pay your rent, there's going to be a shortfall if you try to go ahead and spend $200 at a fancy French restaurant. Exactly, exactly. You know, or you can't just go ahead and fly over to Paris and, and, and exactly. blow, unless you would like to get into credit card debt, which, exactly. is, which is fine if that's your desire. But, you know, you just, what does this have to do with the writing life? Yeah. What does this have to do with life in general? I There's know. a lot of life I feel that if you just go and go for a walk, you will find just about anything. Yeah. That is fascinating. I mean, you just have to be open to it. That, that's why I continue to live in New York City, and yeah. I really can't afford it at all. <laughs> and, you know, I, I live in a lovely part of Harlem, and I'm very happy with my very modest one bedroom. Well, I think we all but, live in New York City because most of our income is going to the rent, but everything yeah. else is fascinating and exactly. it's actually almost worth the price of rent because you see so many subcultures, so many different types of people, exactly. so many fantastic conversations, and, and there are creative ways to keep on going. Exactly. I mean, New Yorkers are so sympathetic to yeah. people being poor and yeah. they understand, everyone feels poor here. You know, no one can afford it here, so there's a, there are creative ways to make your life work. Um, yeah, I mean... And this, this is a place where outsiders can truly find themselves or, or be accepted in a way I find. I mean, I, I don't have any other home. Uh, my, I've struggled with my hometown of Los Angeles yeah. um, in different ways. I think we all ways. do, though. Even, even living in New York, after a while, you do struggle with it. Yeah. I mean, even, even after you acclimatize yourself to the notion that I am a New Yorker, which takes about three years, as I learned. Right, right, <laughs> you know, right. You know, there was a lot of, like, really weird resentment attached to that notion of, of belonging, which is weird. I don't know of any other place that has that. Well, that's the thing. I mean, it's never perfect, right? And, and every it, it, there's a lot of love-hate that comes with it. But it, it seems to me that there's no other place for me personally to live. I can't think of any other. I, I've now lived all around the country. You know, I've taught in the, mostly because of teaching jobs, but I've lived yeah. in, you know, you know, the Southwest, the Northeast, the Mid-Atlantic, the West, you know, and uh, it, all of it has dazzled me. And in some way or another, I found something I've liked about it. But um, that, and today, you know, not to cheesily bring it back to the book, but th- for me also writing this book, um, I wanted to write a, a New York story and a sort of 
uh, I'm cringing a little bit saying this, but a sort of love letter to New York in a way, um, because especially during a time where I think we almost lost New York in a strange way between the Y2K to 9-11 and post, just immediate post 9-11 era. I mean, I... I felt very, very nervous because I thought if we lose New York, and yeah. I mean that in many ways, then then what else do we have? New York City is a symbol of hope for a lot of the world, actually. Um, and that's why so many diff- people of so many backgrounds can live here and, and do come to live here. Nobody's surprised to know it's too expensive or too impossible in any way. But they make that choice um, because of New York's openness. Yeah. I, let's bring it to Zal, because mm. uh, I, I think that's what's interesting about your main character here is that Zal, he's very much defined by how society views him. He is plucked from Iran, yet in the mind of Hendrix, who is one of the medical arbiters who tend to him. Uh, he's always this feral child uh, when he develops romantic and sexual longings. It's the medical arbiters, Hendrix and Rhodes. Interestingly, that both are named after guitar gods, by the way. <laughs> Ed, that's amazing. I didn't... I Jimi didn't, Hendrix didn't, and Randy yeah, Rhodes, man. Yeah, I mean, it, this is the first time it clicked for me. Yeah. That's amazing. I must... I, that's... I had no... I mean, well, I know of those two, novel, of course. But <laughs> yeah. But that that I, that I was not intentional, but I maybe came from my subconscious. That's amazing. I love that. Well, anyway, so you have these two medical people. Mm-hmm. They are... They want to declare how Zal feels rather than Zal himself. And, and judging and classifying people, well, especially someone who is from another nation uh, or considered the other, this is very much part of an American cultural tradition. Uh, Zal is determined to fight these impulses simply by living. But I'm wondering, you know, how do you think storytelling and mythology can be strong enough to essentially combat these injurious forces against the individual? Well, I think at some point, that's a great question, um, you have to create your own narrative or observe your own narrative, inhabit it, and become it in a way. You know, at, at some point I made the decision at a young age when I was, you know, my, my entry into America was, was a hard one. I was really heavily derided on the playground, you know, at first because my parents would dress me up yeah. way too much, as immigrant parents often do, and I looked off. And then when I tried to do my version of what being an American looked like, you know, that was off too. And then I did the, then I just at one point, I, I swear, I remember at age five or something, I just said, I'm none of these things. I'm going to be my own thing. And I remember I, it was just a small decision, like putting together an outfit for school. I told my mother, I'm going to do it myself now. And I put on these knee-high, neon-orange soccer socks with cowboy boots and a cowboy hat and one of my dad's shirts and, you know, some completely confused thing. And I went to school and immediately everyone looked at me like it was like some Halloween gone wrong. And But I, you stood I, out. I, I stood out and, you know, you actually I owned kind it. Of, you kind of owned it and you yes. took it back and you basically said, all right, you want to go ahead and tag me? 
Now you have to tag Exactly. Yeah. And I discovered that I humor was something, and I would create my own sense of humor, and that pranks were another way to exist, and that I would create my own pranks. So I became this ultimate well, what, what weirdo. What kind of pranks did you do? Oh, God. Well, What's the worst one you did? I was really um, obsessed with uh, prank calls, and at first it was just students, that I, other students. That, so at one point it was very popular in elementary school, weirdly, to call your friends, which yeah. is kind of a strange thing. And so I was doing it within that group or, you know, I'd pretend to like boys and then I would call them and just say bizarre things and ask them really invasive questions and then just, you know, <laughs> flee. Okay, got to go. Bye. And then um, I, but that went really fa far and eventually I started trying, I, got, I became so fascinated with, you could call anyone anywhere in the world. You know, and I, so I'll I confess, started, yeah. I'll confess. So I, I actually, when I was a, a teenager, I'd get up very early in the morning and I would sometimes call the local radio DJ, and I would pretend to be characters. I pretend to be like some some taxi driver, I and I just I created about I don't know uh, hundreds of characters. Yeah, I had characters, and they never actually like you know pegged me as the one guy, and I somehow got let on air. And for some reason Amazing. that that I mean I don't know I don't know what, what the impulse was. I, I just like to perform, perhaps, yeah. but also it's just like. Other people would call and they just would be sort of, you know, uh, I just thought I'd need some pizzazz and, and they never actually identified me as the, as the guy. And I, I, I don't know, I, I had, I don't know, dozens of characters. It, it makes really, sense to me why a writer yeah. would want to do that. It totally makes sense yeah. to me. I was really into and You did that too, it seems yeah, like. Yeah, I mean, at yeah. one point, I just remembered there was one guy that my best friend and I had found. We loved to also call, we just call so many people, you know, do different combinations of numbers till we got someone interesting in our head. So one was like, an old man, and we decided, one of us was talking to him and decided that, uh, I think it might have been her this time, that she was a Playboy Playmate, and we're like six years old. We don't even know what that means really, right? <laughs> and we had figured out that in our heads that those like Playboy Playmates talked in baby voices, which is genius, actually, right? I mean, that's exactly right. Yeah. So we just did a lot of cooing and giggling. And I remember at one point, he, he they, kind of... They believed he, it. Yes, this guy went along with it. I mean, he might have been a pedophile. Yeah. Who knows? But maybe he believed. I don't know what he was thinking. He you, was hard of hearing, too. You were testing, I th and I think I yeah. was, too. You were testing the notions of what people are willing to believe. Exactly. And, and, yeah. and I'm sure you probably had a similar situation. <laughs> might they actually believe this? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is... It is what Totally we do with this talent, the, right? It's totally the combo <laughs> of the storyteller and the adventure, which a yeah. writer should be too, and a little bit of an agitator too, which I, I is a writer that I, is a is a trait that I admire in writers as well. And I remember I eventually called up Kenya. I would call up foreign countries. You called all, foreign countries? Yes, I learned country codes. And so that was you really dangerous. Precocious. Oh my God, my parents were, you know, and they had no money. You know, we were, my brother and I were sharing <laughs> oh one bedroom in a tiny What'd two bedroom apartment. What did they do when you got, they got the bill? They were just horrified and mortified that I was doing this all the time. And I would call up, you know, I, I remember, I think I tried to call Nairobi and I was so disappointed that it was someone who sounded like me or just an, yeah. you know, had no, I wanted, I, I kept asking that if they could speak in Swahili. And the person was just like, what are you talking, you know, who is you, this, you, you know? You wanted to know how other people sounded all across the world. I mean, this is before the internet. Exactly. And you wanted to know what this was all about. I mean, exactly. it makes total sense. Yeah, that's My funny. father had told me at one point that if you drilled a hole through the center of the earth, this comes up in my first novel too, then it would come out the other end into uh, somewhere in China or something, yeah. I think. And, uh, you, you, did you dig a hole? Uh, well, I, well, I would have dug the hole, but I, my I phone actually, calls. <laughs> did I, did, I did when I was about... Uh, <laughs> 
I think I was eight years old. Oh, I and I, I, I started just digging up the backyard until like it became, like, dinner's ready. <laughs> we got pretty far. You know, I my, love yes. that. I actually, geez, kids are geniuses. We get so, all their instincts are so right on, actually. Well, you have all this energy. It's yeah. got to go somewhere. I, I love it. It's like the right energy, the right questions. Those are, those are the right things to think about. Not these, our taxes and like boring things that we preoccupy ourselves with every day. Those, well, we're supposed to, to take those ordinary topics and actually give them a little bit of a spin so people can actually give a damn right. about them. Well, I, as a kid, I always wondered, why are people, and I still, I recently thought about this a lot, and it's a little bit in this book too, why are we constantly paralyzed by the fact that we're going to die? Yeah. Why don't why don't we all become like Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and devote our lives to like near-death studies or things like that? Or how can we continue? This is horrible. How can we love someone if we know this person is going to die? I mean, this is a big idea. This yeah. is well, a we're surreal. We're all going to die as well. Yeah. So you know, I mean, if if you say for the very on the very first date, hey, by the way. <laughs> Just so we understand each other, you and I are going to die. Right. Uh, it just sets a hell of a hell of a moon, has a hell of a beginning for any kind of relationship. It's true. I mean, what kind of impression does that do? I mean, in hindsight, it actually seems like a very reasonable question to ask. Yes. But, but you know, just at that particular moment, you're probably going to, you know, in this, in this, whatever the hell this Tinder thing. You'll encourage other people to swipe the, yeah, to the whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Just to continue and to survive. <laughs> I remember asking my father that as a kid. How is it that everybody can just go on with their lives when this, this, why aren't we devoting to figuring out how to beat, beat death or how to work with death or something like that? And my dad said, well, the good news is when you get older, Life sucks so much. You get so distracted by all the crap of every, you know, that you don't care anymore. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I was, for a while, just crying every day about it. I was in a panic about it. And then, my God, he was right, you know. And now my life can be just, you know, taxes and bills and, and all these sort of boring things. But I often think back to how, how these sort of paralyzing deep thoughts that kids have are actually maybe the right the real right uh, thoughts. <laughs> well, we've been talking about being a prankster, being a person who dabbles in illusion, getting involved with beliefs. And your novel, to my mind, is very much interested in dramatizing how people believe yeah. in hoaxes and illusions. Um, there's this interest in newspaper clippings, such as the one Zal holds up about Bran Silber, the magician. Uh, when Zal makes a move to love Asaya, Asaya responds, you're going to betray me, aren't you? And what's interesting about Asaya is that she's prone to panic attacks. Now, yeah. I, I wanted to ask you about this, because what separates PTSD from the trauma you might feel from betrayal is that, well, PTSD, this originates from fear. Uh, and betrayal trauma is often the response to extreme anger. Uh, this is an interesting distinction, because your characters are not really angry, but they definitely are living in fear. Um, and I'm wondering, do you feel that becoming aware of an illusion is just naturally going to lead one to fear? Is this an inevitable part of living in America? What, what of this? Yeah, that's a great question again. Um, I wanted this book to be a theme. At, at some point, after I'd written a few drafts, I really realized that this book wants to be about magical thinking. And that's what really interested me in Y2K and a period where so many of us, so many of the most Amer intelligent Americans, you know, who were, were having very rational discussions about something so magical, this almost numerological, like, superstition that the numbers will, will destroy us all. Once they all flip to zero, the whole world could self-destruct. And I remember being in San Francisco at the time on, on break from um, my senior year in uh, 
I guess it was winter break, right? And I'm in San Francisco with a friend, and everything was boarded up. Yeah. And people were ready for the. Everyone was saying stock up on water and oh, all yeah. this, this I was panic. There. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. It was wild, and I thought, oh the, my. The amount of Y2K memorabilia was just unbelievable. off the charts. Yeah. And the funny thing is, we don't even talk about Y2K that much anymore. We've wanted to erase it a little bit because I think we have this massive cultural embarrassment. It's sort of a, yeah, it is. It yeah. really is. And it's also before September 11th. Exactly. We don't talk about that time. Exactly. And I think it's very interesting that period of time leading up to September 11th. And then September 11th came, and of course, all the conspiracy theories and myths that were built around that sounded quite magical, too. Um, and so I was fascinated by, I've always been fascinated by superstition, especially as, you know, someone from Iran and my family, it's, I was bombarded by layers upon layers of superstition. If anything good happens, you have to now be scared because yeah. now, you know, you, the, the evil eye stuff, right? Or if, 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 you know, if you do this, then it means this, some, some wild thing. And, and, and so, and then when I saw it happen in the America of my adulthood, it was really, really alarming. So for me, Asya is actually the villain of the novel in some ways. Hmm. I mean, she's a love interest, but she's the villain in, in a way too because she's someone who lets herself become so utterly consumed by magical thinking. That's fascinating to that, me. It's, by, it's because she's carrying this prophecy. Yeah. And I actually felt great sympathy for mm. her because here is someone who has to live with that. And here is someone who also has to live with the possibility of betrayal and also... Uh, you know Zal's actions as well, and I, I, it's interesting that she's the bad guy. Well, I didn't really, I, it's, huh. it's, not, it's complicated. So she's of not course. exactly the bad guy, but in my head, she seems like the ultimate antagonist to Zal's progress. And at some point, for me, I started to feel like she started to get a life of her own. I, at first, I had great sympathy for her, and then she just started becoming very weirdly real to me. And I started to feel that 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 in her hands, in her visions. New York could now literally self-destruct. There's a point at which her anxieties start to become almost material. and um, She's a beacon. Yeah. She became the person who was just basically, hey, poor Chista, go ahead and fling your imagination <laughs> yeah. my way. She was yeah. this absolute pull. And so I can maybe, yeah. I'm terrified of her. <laughs> I'm so scared of her that I wonder if I'll ever be able to read from any of the parts of the text that are really? hers. Because, yeah, my agent at one point said, I remember he was talking about some excerpt, and he said, oh, I really like the scene where her and Zal and her meet or something. And I was just thinking, oh, God, I, don't, I can't do that, or oh, I can't go near that. And he was like, what is wrong with you? And I just, I, 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 I have this very uncomfortable feeling with her. I, she just took on a different life. Meanwhile, her sister... Willow, yes. Yeah, is, is the for pounds. me. Yeah, who's bedridden, uh, you know, very overweight, but Zal sees her as so beautiful, and I really came to fall in love with her. Yeah. I actually, right now, if you had to ask me who I'm most in love with in the world, it actually is this character Willa, who I found who to be. Who wears a T-shirt saying New Yorkers do it better. Uh, does she at one point? I even forgot yeah, she does. that. Oh yes, my she god! Does. During the thought, uh, yeah. the uh, the yeah, scene yeah. which uh, in which a character does something <laughs> rather extraordinary under the influence of alcohol. Yeah. Oh yes. Oh yeah, yes. Of course. Oh my god! I forgot that. Yeah. She. I I came to find her. You know, I, I did become Zal. I became my bird boy in many ways. He's the character closest to me. And did you I, eat insects. Yeah. Well, I'm. I didn't do that, but I'm 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 now reading so many articles about <laughs> well, I'm now reading so many articles of the ethics of that. Yeah. I might really start doing that because it's 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 
really is the... Especially with food shortages, too. Yeah, yeah, it seems to me a really smart thing to do. So we might have some at my book party, actually. Really? And um, I might just kind of go on a diet, of not for a piece or anything, but I just might add it to my diet at first. Now that I'm, you know... Have you done early research? I've never done it in my life. That's the thing. But I read a lot about it, and I, it didn't appeal to me, but I could... It, I, I really started to understand Zal's obsession with it, and I became... I almost, when I was doing internet research on it, say had that same guilty feeling that he had when he would look at it as if he was like looking at porn, you know. And I would just, it was, it was. There was like almost a method acting aspect to this book that sure. was very strange. So the first book, there was none of that. But I mean, even with Willa, when I wanted Zal to fall in love with Willa, I wanted, I, I, I went through lots of. Um, old paintings, you know, various depictions of women. I started to really find, you know, I mean, early, I'm going to get the the era wrong. I want to say Renaissance, but it must be even... The medieval painters always had women sickly, I think, and, and thin, and then it was maybe Renaissance era. or You didn't go you to know. the Impressionists or like the Hopper women or anything like uh, that? Maybe or? not so much. I mean, every every yeah. generation before us actually had a fairly healthy idea of females, I think, maybe until the 60s, yeah. or maybe, maybe a little bit in the 20s too, 30s. But I found um, thinness in, in, in anyone, but especially in, in these depictions of women, to be so terrifying and Horrible and, and skeletal. So, yeah. Even and, and when the women weren't actually that skeletal. Exactly. They were actually sort of, you know, they had flesh on themselves yeah. and they were still portrayed in this kind of... It's so yeah. bizarre and I started to find that really awful and, uh, you know, Asya, of course, has develops a strange eating issue too and she's known, she's almost like a stick figure. Yeah. Whereas Willa is kind of abundant and luxurious and grounded and, and that comes into play in different ways but... I just started to find it insane that we we idealized a certain um, sort of body image in this culture, and so and then why, also yeah. Why were the sisters though? Did you feel the need to go to such hard extremes to explore that dynamic? I'm curious. Well, everybody in this book is in some ways like a feral child. You know, there's there's the absence of parents, right? In a way, and the idea of parents and family is essentially, I think, what both the natural world and the civilized world proposes as how to keep us normal and healthy, right? The stable family unit or, you know, in the animal kingdom, when one, anim- when one parent dies, you know, chaos can often ensue. And um, so, anyways, for me, this family, basically, with, with no parents... Um, the, the extremes there, and there, there's a brother, Zach, too, um, their extremes kind of made sense to me. They, they seemed to me how, what, what could happen, actually, if you just left children without any sort of, um, any sort of example. I mean, when you tip over to extremes, which I do all the time, actually, um, it, to me, that... Uh, there's a little bit of a destructiveness in yeah. that, right? And I saw these children as, as kind of giving themselves to certain uh, destructive acts or destructive ways of being as a way to survive their childhood. And, you know, they they never quite come of age. You can argue no one in this book ever quite comes of age. And coming of age in itself is sort of an abstract idea in, an, in a time where, you know... In our lifetime, it's confusing. You know, when I was a teenager, I would shop for old lady clothes at thrift stores, and my mother, meanwhile, would go to Forever Twenty One, and 
you know, just like to forever 21 or I don't know. Age is such a strange, uh, even the, the idea of age and aging has been uh, so, uh, so confused in so many ways. So I did notice that there were two Kafka epigraphs in this book. Yeah. And this got me thinking about how Kafka responded to Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling, uh, oh, specifically wow. in relation to the story of Abraham, where Abraham is asked to sacrifice his second son Isaac to God. And Kafka's response to this was, why don't we have an other Abraham? Why don't we have someone who is actually never going to be a hero? Why don't we have someone who is actually more or less a secular opportunist? And why don't we go ahead and, and that, is our, our, that is a reasonable, satirical, and ironical response yeah. to this ridiculous parable that re- requires a, an incredible level of sacrifice to show faith. And, and, and it made me thinking, thinking of, of Zal and his relationship to various fathers. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if, if any of this was kind of entering your mind in terms of coming up with some of the, in terms of the association with Kafka. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and whether that, and you, you were talking about family earlier, which is why I had to, I had to bring yeah. this up. No, I, I, I was looking at a lot of Kafka when I was writing this. And I've always, you know, loved Kafka's work, but I've also aspects of Kafka's life I've always been really intrigued by and some I've some I've very much related to as well and um it's interesting it didn't explicitly come into my mind that that the anecdote you're talking about but it I I'm willing to bet it was in there somewhere I mean in terms of exploring patriarchy yeah, was the absolutely. other an idea that, that, that all father figures seem to be imposters in this that's why I sort of Absolutely yeah, yeah. Uh, the Issues surrounding fatherhood and patriarchy and, and even masculine identity and what that means passed on in particular have always really, really interested me. Um, and, and the writers who've had the biggest issues with them, that those themes, whether um, in their biographies or in their work, have always really, really been um, very close to me in a way. It's funny. I mean, my, my first book, too, is like father-son, right? And... Uh, but that really has a lot to do with my relationship with my father. And so... You could imagine possibly an other type of father. Yeah. And in this way, this is how, I suppose, you become the method writer for Zal. That, that yeah. this, is the, this is an alternative that is nevertheless just as true as any nonfiction. Yeah. Or as any reality. Yeah, I think, I think that you're right in, in seeing that. That's wonderful. Well, let's talk about Zal's checkered employment history. I, I, I was yeah. curious about this. I mean, <laughs> you have him constantly working in situations where he is testing his own faith in birds. Uh, there's the pet store. There's the fried chicken place. And, uh, and work almost becomes this weird enslavement with his own faith and his ability to be a bird and his ab- ability to uh, possibly grope for what he doesn't have, which is wings. There's one line in the book. And I'm wondering, you know, uh, is this your way of sort of calling into question the notion of how vocation reinforces great dreams and great aspirations while simultaneously stifles them because of the cruel reality of living, the cruel reality of capitalism, the cruel reality of dealing with a world of illusions here in America. Yeah. Yeah, vocation becomes this this issue like, here, let me give you an identity. Okay, I will take this identity and it will also give me a means to survive. Yes. So why shouldn't that be the self, right? I mean, for me, I, as saying I want to be a writer was never quite a vocation, but it was like, 
more than that in some way, right? And I inhabited it. But of course, that, you know, as we're saying, it doesn't, never really paid the bills, so I had a ton of odd jobs too. And on one level, I wanted to, um, I wanted to fill this book with some of the paraphernalia of um, the uh, pre-9-11 era. And, and one of the big things that happened, I think, before 9-11, some, some major economic collapse, you know, um, about, I believe it was in the winter of 2000, yeah. I, I believe. And so I wanted some of that to be in there. Um, and then there's, as a coming-of-age story for any New Yorker, right, you, you've got that issue of, like, the job that pays the bills, right? Yes. So there's that personal thing there, too, as well as just the, you know, what, what sort of a, a, addresses a more general issue that many people have had. Um, I wanted him to discover himself or to find his footing, but to do it in a way that was both what I felt the reality of it, but also the way that someone who feels so on the outside would, would approach it. So in, in the end, those two things became the same, which is what's interesting. I thought, okay, for Zal, I'm going to try to um, have him learn how to kiss yes, or to learn how to have sex, which also kind of involves learning how to masturbate which also then involves like, okay, then he wants a job. How do you write a cover letter? Um, yeah, and he cuts yeah, and pastes. And right. all of his, I mean, there's this kind of celebration of the autodidact, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Or even at, in another point, how to be a man. He goes into a bar and tries to talk about sports or tries to order <laughs> beers. He slams the four Guinness. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And the funny Again, thing is, numbers are also a big factor. In yeah, this. I, I was very aware of it. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And then the... The funny thing for me with all those things is that, so at first they seemed to me kind of fun and, oh, this is fun to think about someone who thinks he's like a bird discovering those things. But as I wrote them, they seemed exactly my experience of those things too. All these things can be so strange. Think back to the time when you, when when people, you know, told you what sex was and you were like, you know, wait, what? Are you kidding? I remember after a, a video on sex in like sixth grade or something, you know, that everybody was come, going around at lunch breaks saying, do you know there's this thing called masturbation that people do? And maybe some people were actually doing it. I remember I wasn't at that point. And my best friend wasn't. And we were like, is that for real? Like, really? You can do that? And we just, it sort of blew our minds. But there's so much about being human that we quickly absorb and we don't second guess and we just go along with it even though a part of us realizes there's something strange or how come we haven't timed out and said, what the hell is this? And that happens with the job stuff too. The rituals we have around getting jobs or um, um, accepting jobs. But it's interesting because we were talking earlier about how the millennials no longer have that job ritual in which you are confronting (laughs) your own identity and what society thinks is that identity and how there's a great chasm. And yet... In your novel, in Zyle's Adventures, you do see that actually it's also fraught with a lot of pain. Yes. And, and, and maybe this might explain, perhaps in some instances, the sort of um, delayed adolescence that we sometimes see. And a lot of millennials who weren't able to get work, they don't have that ability to, you know, kind of contend with the stamp that society wants to put upon them. And, yeah. and, and to think of, of our lives as, as lacking that experience is, is Incredible. I mean, I what would what directions would we have gone off if we had not had that? I know. I asked a student recently. I said, "Well, what sort of internships are you looking for? What can I help you with?" 
And that already is sad because this person is now, should be post-internships, yeah. you know, but they're, they're, they become eternal interns. And he, he's so bright. He's an incredible student. And he said to me, well, what should I be interested in? What should I want? And I was really moved by that question. I'm really saddened by it because I know when I was asked, if I was asked something like that when I was his age, I would have, okay, I, this is my idea of what I want. I would like this or that. I would have some, some thoughts, and maybe some of them were, would have been kind of quixotic and crazy too yeah. <laughs> and not practical, and then my advisor would then talk me down or give me the steps. But there was a blankness. There was a, I have no idea, yeah. you know, and, and that's, you know, so sad about the millennials. Um, I, I really... We just, need illusions to survive, yeah. even the illusions we create for ourselves. And when you're faced with stark reality and, and no wiggle room, maybe, right. maybe this also even answers the question we raised further about what the hell's going on with literature right now. Yeah, oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. Um, it, it seemed to people, I believe, that the world of fairy tales, the worlds of, myth, of myths, the ideas of just stories, the idea of even art for art's sake, say, let's take it to the extreme there, yeah. um, that these were sort of ornate adornments and not essentials of life. Yeah. But I think in the world we've created now, we see why they're absolutely necessary. You know, I, I've never felt that um, more so that art is essential now um in order to survive a world like the one we've created um it's it and and i think more and more you know all those studies came out about reading and empathy and so many of us were like okay duh we know that but at the same time yes that's that there was another one in the washington post today oh really involving the fact that our online skimming is completely preventing us from reading novels with ambition I know. Um, and it's and you know and that's a horrifying prospect. So horrifying. any any single person who has ambitious art that is willing to set up elaborate illusions is going to face this audience. Uh, so how can storytelling provide? I mean, do we have to, I guess, provide more incentives to, to audiences in order to get them on to, like, Ulysses and all that? Well, but, I get excited when anything like the, the problems come to the surface. Yeah. It's like an infection or yeah. pus coming to the surface. That means then the backlash to that's going to begin, especially with the really young millennials yes. are immediately going to get really... They're obsessed with, like, front lash, backlash, and a sort of... It, in a way, it sounds just uh, uh, like a reactionary sort of tick. But actually what it is is, I think, society remedying itself. You know, we go one way, then they take us another way, and then we find this possible middle ground, maybe, that can address it all. Who knows? It's a healthy oscillation Yeah, in it's a healthy... Exactly. Um, and so I think the minute I hear that, that's going to now tell, send a cue to a whole other audience that, hey, wait, they're saying this about us that we don't read anymore. Let's read. And I see some of the trends in long form coming out of that, that yeah. era where so many members of my oh, yeah. generation brought all the sort of blurby, like Maxim blender, yeah, those yeah, little yeah. bite-sized tidbits. And now I, I have this, you know. It is really weird that we're seeing more of a reverence for, like, you know, long form. We saw, like, yeah. uh, God, why am I blanking out of his name? Uh, 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 Frank's not had a cold. Uh, oh, oh, um, 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 <laughs> oh, boy. Oh yeah, Gay Talese. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like how how Gay Talese was weirdly fetishized uh, recently by the long form people, and like all of a sudden, and and the same thing kind of happened with Renata Adler when her when Speedboat totally. got reissued, and we're seeing this kind of weird resurgence of like, okay, these are the people who kind of set the way. How do we re- recreate that world and recreate that way of living, even though it's absolutely incompatible with our present age? 
I find there to be something weirdly hopeful in that, and I do weirdly, too. especially because the next generation is trying to adopt a lot of this. And, yes, um, and um, I think they're sick of being told what they are supposed to like and all that. And so every time, but the, dis- the discovery, however, is in nonfiction, not fiction. That's what's weird. I think it's happening, but I see. I I, I feel hesitant because it sounds weird and braggy, but but to say this, but I mean, I have brought up. Objectively, it's not the writer here, but the, the, it just if you look at just the OAME New York Times book review cover, and you know that okay, I wrote, but <laughs> that's irrelevant. Let's just think about my hyper ethnic, even freaky to Iranian's name. Look at her name: Nigerian British, Iranian American, on the cover of the New York Times book review. Both fairly, you know, writers who are. On a, I've always been on a certain outside. That's a big deal. You know, and Helen at age 30 has written five novels. None of them have catered to any trend or any way uh, that, that, you know, what publishers have wanted. She's just been on her own path. And now there's some attention there. And I'm noticing this more and more um, that, that I think... Uh, it, it, I, th- I think it is slowly, you know, fiction, unfortunately, has always been sort of conservative. But I th- I'm seeing things break into pieces a little bit, especially with the rise of, you know, indie presses. Yeah. There's so many good ones over the years. Who've, and now, find, you know, they got legitimized. And I say that in quotes because it was until they got their authors on big awards lists. That yeah. they, and that was when people started taking them seriously. Okay, great. But whatever that means, I think people are taking notice that... Um, and they're also, everyone's become kind of marketing savvy and business savvy. So now we know, oh, look, the way this book is being displayed at Barnes & Noble, somebody paid extra for that. Yeah, or yeah. this book, we now know, oh, publishers make a certain thing a big book and then X happens. The average person is now tuned to that. So there's a suspicion sometimes more than ever of the mainstream or the, so I, I think, um, I, I guess what I'm what I'm sort of seeing if we can come up with is you know is there a way to use storytelling to get that kind of long form affinity uh. further into fiction beyond I mean yes Helen Yemi, absolute rock star which yeah. I think is great but I I really think that there's all sorts of things especially works of ambition and Helen is ambitious of course but I, yeah. I I would like to see that I would like to see more of the idea that people are engaging deeply with these particular um, long-form pieces. I'd like to see a greater display of that with, with fiction. Because we had that... Well, did you see some of the Rebecca Curtis pieces that came out this year, one, The New Yorker and Harper's? No, I did not. They're pretty exciting. And I was like very much like... I mean, The, the New Yorker was always Rebecca Curtis's home. Yeah. And now now she came. She had her comeback. She also had, had Lyme disease and, and all that. And, and the piece was just... So wild and fabulous. And then the piece in Harper's was the same. And so that was exciting. Leslie Jameson as well. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So there, especially, I think, when it, um, some of the female writers or, uh, have, have now been taking over that yeah. and, and pushing some things. Or maybe, sometimes I wonder if, if um, the Vita count, for instance, has uh, allowed for... or pushed people, let's not say aloud, pushed certain um, institutions, certain editors, to, to really look, take a close look around and see what's really going on. Or maybe the women are taking more chances than men. Maybe too. I mean, that just yeah. seems to be the case now. It seems to me, uh, yeah. You know. and, but the men, you know, sometimes I get, I have these students sometimes, they're just like, 
you know, this this conversation also happened recently. Well, you know, I'm a young young guy. I live in Brooklyn, and I read some of the stuff that's for me about young men in Brooklyn. And and I go, but why do you think that's the only thing for you to read? And he goes, well, this is all. And then he this this student talked about like the tradition, and and, and I said, what are you, you are not you're not on a steady diet of things. You know, then I put him on some of the Latin American he's writers. Looking, he's looking for models of manhood, perhaps. Yes, exactly. Yeah, which may but, also be part of the problem. Right, possibly. And then I said to him, okay, well, read around the world, maybe, if you feel like American culture is an... Even in American culture, I think you're going to find your people. But I did put him on a diet of those Latin American um, writers that have influenced me so much, you know, like Donoso, Carpentier, yeah. um, Borges, of course, Marquez, even... And every, to me, there was nothing more exciting than Latin American literature, and maybe still there's nothing more. That was my first literary love. And how did this student react? Never heard of these people. Had no, hadn't even heard of Borges. And, wow. you know, went, took all these notes, went back, and then emailed me and said, oh, I just read this crazy thing, and it was amazing, you know, it was something in Ficciones. And he was like, that blew my mind. I had, thank you. I really didn't know this was out there. And we take that for granted yeah. because I think there was a, we lived in a time, or we came of age in a time where there was a real alternative culture. Yeah. So everything wasn't just there for us. So we were used to digging up things. And if somebody told us about a cool thing that yeah. maybe other people didn't know about, we would get all the more obsessed oh, with yeah. that thing. So, But now there's really no distinction between mainstream and alternative. I have uh, exactly. discussed this with people, this situation where what sells on Amazon, what sells in independent bookstores, and what sells in B&N, it's pretty much the same thing. And it's really, really strange. And I, I don't know if that's especially healthy. No, and I think that one of the only ways to deal with that is looking back in time. That's yeah. why I think where the Renata Adler thing happened. And then seeing, then thinking, okay, I really like Renata Adler or I really love Jose Donoso. Where can I see the lineage? Yeah. Like now, who who are the writers who seem to be of their clan, as I tell students? And so it requires a lot of work, and a lot of work means also having time, and time means making time in the world that we yes. live in because no one's going to give you those things. But I think with the young millennials, that same intellectual curiosity is 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 uh, rearing its head again, and I'm so excited by them um, because they think they're just... They're, they're over certain things, you know? They, they see... Twitter is a place of ads. Yeah. And it's funny because I think we didn't, we, when we all came on Twitter, we weren't thinking about that. And we've seen how it's happened, but they were quick to be like, it's just ads. I'm not going to participate in ads. And I thought that's amazing. I think this note of a young punk throwing a hammer into the screen until it gets uh, remade by Apple many years yeah, later with yeah. the iPad. Yeah. I think it's a good place to, to close yeah. this conversation on. But Porchista, thank you very much. This was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for such wonderful questions as ever. And, and, and thank you for being a, such a great voice for so many of us. A, a, a great critic and supporter of so many of us writers. Thank you. Cool. Thanks.